Afghanistan Project podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host Michael Cook. Today we are welcoming two individuals who were bonded by their service in Afghanistan. Pasun Khan is a former Afghan interpreter who served alongside U.S. forces during heavy combat between 2008 and 2014 when he entered the U.S. through the Special Immigrant Visa Program. Pasun became a U.S. citizen in December 2021. He's a married father of four and he works as a security guard. We're also joined by Ryan Engel, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy who spent six years in the U.S. Marine Corps as an infantry officer. Ryan now works in veteran long-term care. Ryan was a first lieutenant with the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, and had been stationed in Marja in Helmand Province for three weeks when Pasoon was assigned to be his interpreter. Ryan was among the group of nine Marines and one soldier who submitted personal recommendations for Pasoon to be admitted to the U.S. through the SIV program which is really a testament to the quality of service that Pasoon provided. Um, Pasoon is joining us tonight to talk not just about his work as an interpreter, which includes surviving a suicide bombing and being witness to Medal of Honor recipient Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter leaping atop a grenade to save his friend from the blast. Um, but also we wanted to share with viewers the nearly impossible set of circumstances that Pasoon faced after our withdrawal in supporting his family who were stranded in Afghanistan. Ultimately, those circumstances led Pasoon to return to the Taliban's Afghanistan in April of 2022 to try to evacuate his family from the country. Pasoon and Ryan, thank you for being here with us tonight to talk about your stories. Thank you for having me. Well, Pasoon, can you start tonight by telling us what motivated you to work as an interpreter during some of the most intense periods of fighting in really volatile parts of southern Afghanistan? Uh, when I, w I was not really ready to work as an interpreter, and that is kind of later, uh, like an incident too. I was coming from Jalalabad to Kabul, and there was a roadblock and I saw the, there was a use uh, army convoy was blocking the road. And uh, the truck that we were driving in, uh, we had a pregnant lady that she's supposed to be going to the Kabul hospital. And I walked to one of them and I asked them, I said, hey, sir, you guys are blocking the road, you know, and she needs to get to the hospital. And that time I was not familiar with the any military uh, terms for the ID, you know, and all those other stuff and i was like what's going on they said that there's a roadside bomb it's not safe but i told that she needs to go to the hospital so i think there was a staff sergeant in the army and he's like oh you speak really good english why don't you work with us like i don't know where it started from so he gave me his phone number and say call us you know and when you come to Kabul, there's a place like Arlington phoenix and you will working for us so when I come back home and I tell my dad, I say, hey, there's an opportunity, should I work? He's like, yeah, you can do that, but just make sure that you do not come back. It's going to be not an easy job. So that's from where I start joining with them. You know, I thought that there would be, you know, this would be a part of history to be a fight for democracy and see some changings in Afghanistan mm -hmm. after that long wars that we suffered. So that was the, you know, I, I wanted to be something that I can do for my people and the people that they come from nowhere to help us. So, you know, like let's be in the part of the history. And how old were you at the time, Pasoon? Uh, I was, uh, uh, when I saw work, I was a uh, 18 year old. Okay. And do you, do you feel like you really knew what you were getting into? Like, did you realize, uh, you know, how dangerous of a job that was going to be? No, I, I had no idea what is going on in the Helmand province because when uh, I came from the, because before I did work with the, with the other, uh, you know, companies or group of foreigners that were not in the army, they were just uh, civilians, like, USID workers when they come to the town, you know, just helping them out and then they will pay you, you know, some amount of money that you work with them to help them guide. But in 2009, when I was straight going from civilian and work to with the military, that was a completely different experience. And there was a time when there was the Operation Khanjar going on 
and then not even with the army that I went straight with the infantry marines. So that was very difficult and had no idea what we'd be getting into. Yeah. And prior to that point, um, had you had any interactions with the Taliban before becoming an interpreter? No, I did not. And obviously you had um, learned your job really well because Ryan, my next question is for you. And I'd like to, before I ask it, read from the recommendation that you wrote to Chief of Mission in favor of Pasoon's SIB. Um, you said, where firefights and IED explosions occurred daily, Pasoon never wavered in his loyalty to me, my Marines, the Afghan National Army, and the United States cause in Afghanistan. In my time there, I had one linguist killed by enemy fire and two others who quit due to the hostility and poor living conditions in our area. But Pasoon never complained and remained with my unit throughout the entire operation, providing me an incredible resource of linguistic skills, cultural advisement, and loyalty. His courage was on par with his loyalty, as I have personally seen him grab a weapon and take post when our patrol base was under attack, and have seen him act fearlessly in countless enemy engagements, pointing out enemy firing positions and helping my Marines carry casualties off of the battlefield. Additionally, he was of incredible value to me as an advisor, informing me of ANA soldiers I should watch carefully, villagers who were not being entirely truthful, and the state of morale amongst my ANA counterparts. I could not have been nearly as successful a platoon commander without the help of Pasoon Khan. Um, so can you tell me why it was so important? It's kind of in these words, but why was it so important to you uh, that Pasoon qualify for an SIV, Ryan? Well, first of all, I stand by my statement here years later, certainly. Um, you know, the relationship that I developed with Pasoon and certainly all the, the Marines uh, that served with us that they developed with Pasoon. I mean, he did more by the age of, again, I think he said 18. I think he was 19 when you joined me and our platoon Pasoon. I could be wrong. Uh, but by 19 for American foreign policy uh, and made more sacrifices for American interests than most Americans do in a lifetime. And that's not a criticism of of anyone here stateside is just a matter of fact. How many people have been blown up, shot at, shot, uh, or otherwise, uh, behalf of American foreign policy interests? And so, for me, when knowing that you know Pasoon and the 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 services he provided uh, the Afghan government and uh, and thus the United States, and his desire to you know live a live a different life and live a better life uh, it was important to me that he uh, had the opportunity to come here to the united states i want to briefly bring our listeners back to some other points in time after um, your service with ryan Pasoon. Uh, that some of our listeners are going to be familiar with these scenarios but they may not know that you were involved with them so on november 21st 2010 on patrol base dakota in marja you were one of the only witnesses to the act of courage that inspired millions when lance corporal kyle carpenter leapt on top of that grenade as it was coming towards him on the rooftop where he was um, watching out for enemy forces uh, and he leapt atop it to, to shield his best friend from the blast what do you remember about that day, Pasoon? Uh, that is that is the day that uh, I think it will stay with me until I'm alive. And uh, we left. Uh, that was around, uh, say, the first day when we tried to establish a PV Dakota, and we dismounted from the PV Beatley. That was around uh, 4:30. PM on that time, uh, military time, like around 14, 16, we went there and we went to a village that we had no other units there. And we were, that was the first unit to establish a overwatch position for the other Marines on the area to patrol. When I, when we went there the first day, you know, it was kind of quiet and like I was ready for, you know, by the time, because working with, with, with the prior unit already, I know most of the area, like which area was good and which area was bad. And most of those area I was familiar with that. That's where the thing's gonna be coming from. And uh, so we, the first day when we were there, nobody showed any kind of resistance, but uh, I did saw a lot of locals were leaving the 
the house that they were surrounding us. And I come to my staff sergeant and I tell him, I said, sir, you know, things doesn't seem good to me. You know, he's like, why, what happened? I say, I just didn't, don't like these people leaving right now. Because whenever you see these people start leaving from the area, that means something gonna go wrong. And he's like, no, we'll be okay. You know, we will see what happens. We're ready for it. And say, okay, so day pass and next day comes in. So we, we were almost done with digging the, you know, the sands and filling out the sandbags. We did establish a small overwatch over the rooftop just for a couple of sandbags around it. So there's two Marines were sitting there. Uh, it was me, three other a and and two Marines that we were still digging to fill out more sandbags. And I saw a grenade just come through, you know, over the roof. Uh, I did not know where was that, but you know, went and explored. Then I know, well, that's that was a bomb. And that's how I saw he jumped in there. And then we saw a couple other grenades that had come through. Uh, one of them, I think, I sent a picture of that to you. That the one that was really close to to me and other marine that did not explode like we were right in there but we can say that god has a plane but it just didn't blew up on us yeah and how far away uh, that must have been an incredibly um, frightening moment um another time you were not uh, as lucky (laughs) seven meters because we don't have that big houses there but the where he was posted in the small the pb that we capture it wasn't the size of the PB Beatley, I would say it was maybe the fourth size of it, like very small compound. Yeah. And then what what happened after um, the grenade started coming in? Can you guys? The okay. Michael can edit this out. I can't us, hear Michael. You know, can... We got an uh, RPG that had the other post that was not even built yet, but we put the sandbags there. Nobody was there. And uh, there was a shooting, and some of the Marines, because we know we were, the two of them were in the post, and the rest of them were inside the rooms resting when that happened. And there was a thing, if I'm not mistaken, like six or eight grenades just come like right after each other, like right behind. Jeez. And uh, I don't know if you remember, how many casualties did you guys take other than uh, Kyle Carpenter? There was only two, and that that day we took two of them. They were very serious. Yeah, got it. And then, um, so what (laughs) happens next? So fighting calms down, and then what happened? Well, they can't awake them, and next day the same thing again because they – surely want, you know, no foreigners to be there in that area where they were operating from. That whole area was highly kinetic at that time. And those two days alone show just, just what you were facing. It was not even two years later when you were on a dismounted patrol in Kajaki with the Marines, when a suicide bomber attacked and you weren't as lucky as you had been in that incident where you witnessed uh, Lance Corporal Carpenter leap on that grenade. Uh, can you tell us about that suicide attack and your own recovery process afterwards? Yeah, we were in uh, Kajaki there at the base that we were standing that call him Cop uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, we went on the patrol that morning. And when we were coming back from the patrol, I had the icon chatter on me and the patrol sergeant with me was uh, in Chambers. Uh, they were, we were calling him Buck, but I don't know his first name. Uh, when uh, we were coming in there, I told him, I said, hey, you know, uh, I heard something that coming on the icon chatter that there will be a attack on us. And those were like the usual traits that they were giving to the villagers all the time. We had a couple of letters that I say to stay away from the Americans. If anything happens, you know, that circumstances was going to be on, on you guys' own. We're not responsible for it. They were putting those later in the mosque, you know, in the school area too. And also in in the bazaar where that happened, they put, a, they put those letters to the shopkeepers too. 
that if any Marines comes in, you guys need to stay away. If anything happened, any kind of blast happened, we are not responsible for that, for you guys' injury. And I remember when we come there, you know, so we start talking to the local. There was another unit from that day that I call him 1-1. Uh, Lieutenant Ryan is good. Uh, he he will explain better than I do. They were called the advance party, so their lieutenants and some of those uh, officers arrived before, like the other Marines arrives on site. So we were kind of showing them the area in our contacts, who who's going to be working with them and who they're supposed to be watching for that. So that was their first day on the ground too when that blast happened, like right in the bazaar. And what do you remember of that blast, or is it, can you remember what happened that day? No, I did not really remember anything. When I woke up, that was in uh, Kandahar Air Base, and the first thing I asked was for the water, you know, because I was very thirsty, and my mouth and nose were completely smell like gunpowder, and I couldn't see anything, you know, but... uh. Uh, there was a female there, she was a nurse, maybe, because I couldn't remember the face, but uh, the first thing they asked me was what what my name was and where I was. So I was not that good at that time, but I told her that because um, uh, uh, the one six Marines were calling me Khan instead of my name. Uh, and I was like, my name is Khan. You know, they're like, do you know what happened to you? And I was like, no, I don't. So, you know, she say, okay, he remembers things, but, you know, then they give me a little water. And after a few days that I was getting a little bit better and couldn't really understand what was going on with me because I was not able to see anything. And after a month or maybe more than that, when I was able to see a little bit, just a, a light shining, you know, like I know there's light in the room. And I asked the nurse, you know, so like, what's going on with me? I cannot see anything. She said, oh, you were in the blast, but we put you in the dark area. If you go out to the sun right now, they might fix your eyes. So we will be like this for a little while. I was like, okay. And then I remember that they were transferring me to the Kabul base. Uh, they call him uh, Kia, the Kabul Air Base. I was there in the French hospital for another month or so. But finally, when I got there, there was a clinic they call it the American clinic. And when uh, that was the time that I was able to see at least to say who's who. And my father visited there uh, for the first time after, say, four or five months when that blast happened. And he's like, do you know who I am? And I was like, no, not sure, you know, because I couldn't see his face clearly. But then I recognized... Uh, one of my cousin that he was uh, my classmate with me from the school then to the English classes and other courses. So I recognize his wife that uh, somebody's visiting from family. So his name is uh, Fai Wastun. So I tell him, I say, is that you? He's like, yeah, that's me. Then I know that I was somewhere in the safe place. But for a long time, I was still like, did not know where I was. That must have been incredibly frightening. How long did it take for you to regain your sight and, and to regain other things? You, you weren't able to walk after the blast from my understanding either. So what was no. that? What was the timing of your recovery? It takes from uh, January to August was a little bit of time that I could start walking a little bit back. The, my nurse, that she, I was, you know, she was that kind of person nurse. Her name was Dr. Hena. She used to hold my hand, you know, walking around in the compound and also showing me how to use the spoon again. And also she brought a computer to say, just go ahead and start using your eyes for that so that way you can get back to it. It's like you teaching one year old kid again how to eat and how to walk again, you know, and holding his hand. So that was kind of difficult. Yes, and you were also in your time working as an interpreter shot twice. So you, you really took quite a lot of um, damage working with U.S. forces, but you rejoined when you did recover, right? And you began working as an interpreter yes. again? Yeah, I started working with the National Guards. Uh, that was the Georgia National Guards in Kabul, uh, plus her bases. I don't, I don't know that I would have came back <laughs> if it was me. You're a lot braver than I am. 
<laughs> but I think we've talked before, Pasoon, and you said it wasn't easy to come back. Like mentally, it was taxing when you came back, right? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? No, because, you know, like when when I come back, you know, the thing, you know, the, I work with the Marines and then coming back to Army, they're talking, you know, they were nice people, but, you know, the way we were talking to the Marines, you know, where we were gossiping with them, you really cannot do with, with Army, you know, they were a little bit different than that. And then, you know, sitting back in there, you know, going back on the patrols in the cars, I was mostly scared of, of, of everything for most of the time, you know, from the cars, you know, from motorbikes that are coming to your patrol. So, you know, for, for a long time, you know, I was kind of shocked, you know, like what's going to happen, you know, like walking on the cobbly roads there. And unfortunately, that put me with, with the QRF there, with the Quick Action Force, when there was another unit that I was not doing anything. So for some reason, they choose to bring me back to the QRF. So anything happened, we were the first responder to respond in Kabul City. You know, suicide bombers happened. We will go and provide our watch for the Afghan army or, or any other units. And uh, when coming back in the Kabul, there was a base that called Camp Pinnacle when that uh, car bomb happened there. And I was in the ship that day. So that was one of the difficult day that uh, bringing those dead bodies, you know, injured people from that side into the hospitals. And I was, you know, I remember that how, you know, like how somebody picked up me, you know, like kind of thinking there for a good time, you know, like when you see those people that they are begging for help, you know, like you cannot do anything. There's not a lot to do, but you can only talk to them and give them a hope that, you know, everything is going to be okay. But because personally, I can feel the pain, you know, what they were going through because I experienced everything on my own. But that was the most difficult time, you know, working in the Kabul back as an interpreter. That all makes me so glad that people like Ryan and the other nine individuals recommended you for the SIV program because you really did work so hard for us, even after going through so much pain yourself. I want to fast forward now to the evacuation of Kabul. You were less than a year away from achieving citizenship when the U.S. withdrawal occurred. And at the time of the evacuation of Kabul, there were three senior military personnel, a gunnery sergeant, a major, and a lieutenant colonel, who personally submitted letters recommending that your family be immediately evacuated from Kabul. What happened when your family arrived in the vicinity of Hamid Karzai International Airport? When the, that happened, you know, I called a couple of, of the Marines that uh, uh, I was sitting, uh, you know, when that uh, couple evacuation happened and I saw a, there's a guy named Charlie, uh, you know, he was holding a child in the Kabul airport and I was like, oh, I know him from 1-6, you know, he's there. So I started digging into to find, get some hold of from 1-6 and uh, then I finally got a hold of uh, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Buck and I say, hey, is there anybody at the airport right now? Because I can see Charles and some other uh, some other Marines there. He's like, what's going on? Because my family is still there, you know, and I need help to get them out. Then I finally hold another uh, sergeant from 2-8. Uh, his name was Lewani, and uh, he told me that uh, Doc Moore is at the airport right now. And uh, my family did two attempts. And the day that the Kabul bombing was happened, my brother went there, uh, his name is Zubair, you know, at, uh, when I talked to the unit, they said, tell your brother to come here, we will get him, you know, and he will stay with us on those top of the conics, and when your family arrives here, so he will point it to us who they are, then we will be able to grab them from the, because there was a lot, big crowded, and uh, so we were in and the process. What, what and, gate were they at? Uh, the Abbey, where that uh, attack happened. Okay. And... Uh, so my brother called me, uh, uh, well, he was there, he said that uh, there's a lot of people in, because uh, uh, I think he was stuck on the continental wire, he said that I ripped my leg in my clothes and, you know, my leg is bleeding. So I tell him, I say, just go on the side right now, you know, and wait for the other family members to come join you. He might walk like 10 or 5 minutes away and then the... Lawani messaged me and say, hey, is your family still at the gate? I say, I think so. He said there was a suicide bomber. 
And that uh, one hour to get hold of anybody was the most difficult hour for me again, because I knew that Zubair was already on the gate and the other family was on the way to the airport. And I couldn't get hold of anybody in that time because the, when the Taliban come right away, the internet was not working that good. A lot of phones, towers were not in the very good signals. So finally, I got hold of Zubair. I said, what's going on? They said, well, it looks like there was a something happened by the gate. And I said, where you are? He said, well, I, I was away from it. But, you know, that was the day that I was, you know, I did a lot of things to God that things that somebody was watching for us. If not, there will be another catastrophe or tragic event. And it still wasn't easy for you because now your family was safe from the bombing, but they were stuck in Afghanistan. And they had um, priority two referrals to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Is that correct, Hassan? Yes, they, uh, they were referred to there too. And also one of the uh, Gunnery Sergeant Buck did a uh, P2 program too, which we applied for that too. But no, nothing come from that either. And... After that, so I see, and at this time, too. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry, uh, you know, everybody was in shock, you know, like even in the Kabul, nobody knew what to do. And also, when my father was a colonel, uh, he suffered a suicide, three suicide bomber in 2017, where he shot at himself, you know. So, we were we knew that, you know, like there gotta be something, you know, and my dad will be a, a first target. and. So we decided. Uh, right, your dad was with the National Directorate of Security. Yes, so we, Correct. You know, we told him that uh, he needs to yeah. to leave the house, you know, as soon as possible, you know. That, uh, and then he went to a lot of places. He was on the run for for a long time. During that period, you became responsible for supporting not only your family back in the United States, but also your family in Afghanistan because they weren't able to go out anymore. And so how were you making that work financially and how what what was your system of making sure people were safe? Well, the, it was not only, you know, my, my sibling, my brother. Uh, uh, I had a uncle that he is still here with you know, in Afghanistan with my with my family. He was also a driver with 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 my dad, you know. For uh, he was also in the uh, national director, NDS, the national directorate of security. So I have to support his family, which he got six kids, him and his wife, and I had also eight mine and then here. So I worked the start shifting because I was working for Uber. I was working sixteen hours shift of security, and then two days in the. You know, on the weekend, I go to San Francisco, work there for Uber just to support them to make sure that, you know, at least they will have enough food there. But and the problem with them, because they were not in the one spot, so they were separated all over the country, you know, like it was very difficult for me to catch up with all of them. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then to fast forward a little bit, you actually went back into Afghanistan can you tell us what that was like going back to a, a Afghanistan that was under Taliban rule at the time? Yeah, you know, because uh, if you see, you know, my dad I, in the pictures, you know, he he was in, in pretty good shape. But uh, after, I, I think after six, seven months when I started talking to him and uh, I think it was in Jalal about that time when uh, I talked to him face to face. Well, when I saw him, uh, you can see a different man there, you know, like. Like, it's like two men right now, you know, when one soul, I was like, what happened to you? You know, like you can see uh, his weight, you know, he was way too overweight from it. And then he got a diabetes, blood pressure, and so many other things that he didn't have before. Blood cholesterol, because he was not able to walk, you know, sitting in one spot. I don't know for how long you can sit in the one room, but it's like you were in the jail. And I was uh, sitting in, in my work at night, you know, and... One of my friends called me, they're like, hey, there is a program they call in the family reunification and you will be not able to get all of them out, but at least your mom and dad. And I was at work, there, you know, doing the security shift that night. And I was like, okay, you have to make a decision, you know, like once you go through that airport, you're by your own. There's no embassy, there's no consular service. You know, it's like, you really don't know what you are stepping into. And 
because the other problem there is uh, nobody knew that I was working with the Americans until I got blown up. So I was already exposed. And if you're going back to, again, with the American passports on hand, I'm pretty sure you guys saw some of the news. They arrested a couple of people as a spy for the Americans when they were doing the welfare works to, to provide some of the food to those hungry families. And I was like, well, let's make a decision. You know, I have to lose something, you know. And going in through there, it was not an easy task. Like, it's very difficult. Like, you really don't know. And the problem with that is because you really don't know which group gonna kidnap you or which group gonna get you. Because you really don't know who's who there. Everybody's wearing the clothes in with AK-47. You really don't know who's the police right now. And so pretty much for us, everybody was the enemy. And I think it's important to say here too, you didn't just go to Afghanistan because you thought, oh, this is you know, the next best option. You had been trying lots of other methods to get your family back before. Ryan, you had been involved in some of that work, right? To try to get Hassoun's family here without him having to return to the Taliban's Afghanistan. What were those efforts including? Yeah, so really, you know, Pasoon had been here in the United States, and then with the United States exit, you know, then we had kind of lost touch, right? He had he had got here to the United States, and I know was doing well, and then I had moved. We lost contact off social media, that kind of thing. But upon exit, he was able to get a hold of me, and you know, at this point, I'm years out of service, right? And uh, but they're kind of in the Marine Corps. You know, you, you always got a guy, or <laughs> you always know somebody that might be able to help. And uh, whether it's cleaning a carburetor or uh, immigration attorney, and gr- th- thankfully, uh, you know, through a Marine contact who had uh, who knew an immigration attorney wanted to take this case on and help us out. Uh, pro bono. Uh, so we were very fortunate for that because, you know, I don't know and many people don't know where to start through the convoluted immigration processes. So we did that. We filed various visas that, you know, cost thousands of dollars that we uh, fundraised for and crowdfunded. And uh, again, graciously, we're well supported and able to cover all the filing fees. Um, and then, you know, filed all these visas. This was October of 2021. And here we are, you know, today, a year and a half later, and we still don't have receipts back from USCIS for all of Pasun's siblings, I don't believe. And so they're just in this, you know, uh, we don't know what's happening. And um, so that's been very frustrating, I think, you know, for Pasun, for me, for all involved. But but summarily, right? So, I mean, here we are, fast forward, October, six months goes by in April. And there you have Pasoon, a United States uh, citizen at this point, flying to Kabul, uh, sick of waiting on action of the United States government to to help his family and goes out and gets his at least his parents out himself. Um, And so which I don't you know, and I shared this with Pasoon, I don't know that that was the best idea. And, um, you know, he did it. And I think I think that's remarkable. And his success in that regard was remarkable. But certainly there's still. Uh, we're, we're, we have still have work to do. Well, and, and I would love to say that soon you're the only person that I've talked to who did that. You're not. There have been multiple American citizens and green heart card holders who have done the same thing because they were getting no results staying here and waiting and hoping. But when they went into Afghanistan, they were able to get the state department to remove them and their family members. But can we talk a little bit about the Afghanistan that you encountered when you entered. I mean, you and I have talked before about uh, you gave the last $300 from your wallet to a neighbor because they, what were, what were they preparing to do with their daughter? Can you tell us a little bit about that story? You know, when, when I went there, you know, like you can see the Kabul city is, you know, like you can be lucky for that, that the city didn't blown up again, you know, it's a nice city. But if you go to the city and you look through the city, you can see hunger all over the country young, older, for in Afghan culture, for a female to begging, you know, to be a bigger on the streets. And I think it's a shame for everybody, but but I saw young women, teachers, you know, they that were working with the with the USIDs and all other organizations, you know, and we had this neighbor that uh, we know him from a long time. He used to drive a taxi driver. He has, he has nine daughters. And 
the taxi that he had, you know, his uh, owner decided to sell it. He was jobless and he tried to sell his daughter that I did not know about it. You know, my mom told me that, hey, our neighbor, he's trying to sell his daughter. I said, excuse me? You know, I thought that she was getting married, you know, or something like that because Afghan, you know, when the daughter gets married, they should get some money for that, you know, is a culture that buy stuff for the daughter again. I was like, are you joking to me? She's like, no, he is selling his youngest daughter. And I say, why? Because she told me to support the other eight you have to sacrifice one. I, I walk up on him, you know, I said, I promise you were selling it. And he was asking for not that much, $200. And I was like, excuse me? Like, how painful is it going to be to selling your child for that less amount of money? And that was the only dollar that I have in cash with me. And I was like, I don't have much, but it, you know, it's only $300 that I might help you out, your family for maybe we'll, I don't know for how long you can feed those nine people there, but at least something that you're not going to be selling your daughter to anybody. It must have been incredibly difficult to be there. And you were stuck there for, can you remind us all, how long were you having to wait for the Department of State to evacuate you and your parents? Yeah, two, say like uh, almost uh, 12 weeks. To three months almost. Oh, Twelve weeks, and you were, and that was the you were trying to also get them to evacuate your was, siblings. Because my case was a little bit different. There was a lot of pressure on the lieutenant. Uh, uh, Captain Ryan was working with uh, his congresswoman. I know another marine that uh, uh, his uh, uncle is a state representative in Oklahoma. Chris Lee, he was on the state department under care. And there was another senator that uh, I do not remember his exact name, but, you know, he was on them too. So, they, you know, my case was because I know people that stuck there for six months. Yes, you were the quickest of the people that I have spoken with to yes. get out. But still 12 weeks is 12 weeks of waiting for the Taliban to show up at the house or someone to, to let it slip that and you were there. You that were never a, able to get them to. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, and that was also you know as soon as we depart from there next week, I'm pretty sure I send you the pictures. They come and search our house. Wow. That was. I don't remember hearing about that before. I. I think I did a very frightening. Uh, and your your escape to the airport too. Yes. Can you tell us how you had to escape to the airport? You couldn't take main roads because of all the Taliban checkpoints. That was the you know first when 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 I went there you know, from Kabul that was good. But uh, after that, uh, our family members told us you know one of them told me uh, basically said like you need to get out of here even if you're not able to get your family out of here, you need to get out of here. And I was like, what's going on? I said like, well you know nobody will be able to take your, your responsibility on in Afghanistan. So that's where we start using, not the main road, but you can go anywhere. They had a checkpoint all over the place. And then my dad know a lot of places because he so, was here in the mm -hmm. for a long time. And he know a lot of dirt road to come around it. So, my so you were here. racing down those dirt roads and... <laughs> I think you said that at one point they were shooting at your car. Yes, my, the Talibs who saw yes, you... My, yeah, I, the same uncle that I was saying, you know, he was driving the car and we didn't stop it to them. So they shot at us. And I was like, what's going on in the back? He said, like, well, they're shooting at us. I was like, what do they want? You know, like, they said, like, well, what are you doing in this dirt road here? You know, because we were coming from Jalalabad to Kabul to get a uh, marriage certificate for my mom and dad because the State Department requires that to get that. And after the Kabul sure. collapse, you cannot make anything in Kabul. You have to go where you're from or what district you, you were born, so you have to go there. I see. And it was really hard, I remember, for your mother in particular because she was told she had to leave all of her children in Afghanistan. And you have how many siblings who are now stuck in Afghanistan? I got uh, three, three brothers and three, six of them are now. 
six of them. And what was it like for your mother to leave them behind? Uh, first, they were not, uh, you know, ready to leave that. And, uh, even my dad, because uh, my youngest one, he never been away from the dad. You know, most of the time he was with him. Even sometimes he would go in, with him into his office, you know, a lot of time. But when I when I received an email from the department that said that you cannot take any of your siblings with you, you will be only take your mom and dad, they were not really ready to go. So I got a hold of uh, our attorney that she was helping us. Uh, name is Wiki. I, I emailed her and say, hey, man, this is what's happening right now. And I really don't know what to do. You know, if I'm here and I'm going back with nobody, you know, so my there, there, there's no point. So she told me the best thing you can do is convince your mom and dad. Once they get here, we will be able to get your two youngest one, not the other one. So I convinced both my mom and dad and tell them that if you guys go there, you know, at least I will be able to get these two out of here, you know, the one that I'm, they're not 18 yet. And that was a very difficult time for them to leaving, because uh, leaving from home to the airport, you know, my youngest brother was with us. He was escorting us to the, and he was crying all day, you know, until we departed from there. He was on the FaceTime with my mom the whole time. And he still calls. And when I talk to my brother there, sometimes he will wake up at night, you know, talking to himself. So I've been giving him hope that I will get you out of there one day, but I don't know when, but I will definitely get you out of there. Have you been able to, I know that some Afghans who are in the U.S. have been able to petition for sibling visas, but that there's a seven-year wait for those sibling visas. Have you been able to make those petitions yet? No, for your siblings? Not, no not yet. I really don't know about the process, but I was, you know, I'm still asking people how they wait. Sure. And seven years is a really long time oh, yeah. to have to wait, too. And I mean, Ryan, I'm sure that you probably applied the applications that you guys made were probably humanitarian parole applications, I'm going to guess, for yes. your siblings, Basun. And those obviously are, they seem like they're in limbo. Completely. Yeah, I mean, there's really no update. There's been silence from USCIS. And, you know, we've struggled to really find, and maybe they're out there, I don't know, but who are those representatives or senators in the, in Congress that are really championing this issue? And I don't, um, I mean, they'll, you know, we'll have people check with USCIS and get status updates, but the status is regularly no update. So. It's infuriating because we watched how quickly there was a drive to get USCIS to issue humanitarian parole to Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine. Um, but I think that there have been multiple tens of thousands of Afghan applicants for humanitarian parole. And I believe it's something like 4,000 of them have been accepted. So, and, or who have been processed and it's several hundred have been accepted. It's, it's an infuriating system right now. So, Pasoon, unfortunately, the drama and the saga of, of leaving Afghanistan didn't, didn't stop with getting your parents out. They were taken to Qatar, where they were told they would have two months of processing before they could return to the U.S. Is that accurate? Is that what the timeline was supposed to be? They, uh, when I talked to somebody called from the State Department, uh, he was an, an Afghan interpreter. When I talked to him, he said, make sure that you have a medication for your mom and dad because they were diabetics to for one month you know and i was like he said like you know it might be a month or two months mm -hmm. not more than that but make sure you have the medication for at least a month for them i got the new thing but it took eight months what was that like for them being stuck there for that long of a period uh, you know, when I was talking to them, my, you know, especially my, my mom was not saying anything because, you know, she was already mad on what happened, leaving the siblings. But my dad told me one day that I will go to the army where, you know, there was a couple of army people sitting in there that I will tell them, if you guys cannot send me to America, please send me back to the Afghanistan. I'm happy to go back there. Because the thing that they were frustrating them, and personally, when I was there, you know, for one week in Qatar, I met a lot of people there. There was like almost 6,000 people, you know, waiting for to be evacuated to the United States. There was an SIV, and a lot of people are those people that call in the family unification that they reunited the family members with those kids that they left in the evacuation with no family. 
and I talked to a lot of them, like say most of them, those are the people that, that had nothing to do with the Afghan government or with the US government. They are because his son left it with his uncle or cousin, somebody comes in and now they are reuniting them, which they, which they are facing no threat, like nothing can happen to them even if they stay there because they did not take part in any government, not either working with the Afghan government or with the US army, no. And then I know a lot of people that contact us, the interpreter that they worked there for seven, eight years, they're still stuck there. And uh, when my father was there, he went to the, because uh, when my father was in there, they make him a representative for his block that they were living in there. There was a huge blocks there. And my dad said that I told one of the army general there that uh, you guys having a problem with the people that they have the legal documents, you know, you guys don't have any problem with those that they have nothing. They come here to stay for two weeks and then they go to the United States. Like what's going on, you know, like my dad was ready to go back to Afghanistan if he stayed there. That really says something about the frustration and, and there have been not enough stories that have come out about the frustrations of Afghans who are stuck in that kind of limbo right now, um, not knowing anything yeah. about what their future might hold. Yeah, um, there's a ton of people in Pakistan that are going through the same thing. Yeah, the, the state security... Uh, well, but they haven't even made it. <laughs> no, yeah. to Qatar yet. The state security come into Qatar, and when I check in their Facebook page and also the Twitter, they say that he met the Afghan, and I was like, where? You know, he just drove on the roads and just went back. <laughs> like, well, who did he meet with? You know, it's like, didn't see anybody meeting any Afghan there. It's so frustrating. Well, now your parents have arrived, um, but you're still supporting everyone who's there with you right now and your family back in Afghanistan. Is that still true? Yes, ma'am. So, you know, it's like more responsibility now, you know, because both of them are sick. You know, you have to get them to the hospital on time, make sure they get their, you know, medication on time. Like sometimes, like today, I only sleep for two hours. That That, that is my best sleep for the day today. And you, so when you and I first started talking, Pasun, over a year ago, you had said that you had just had to leave uh, college because you weren't able to balance mentally trying to work 18 and 20 hour shifts and then drive for Uber and take care of all of your family. And you still haven't been able to return to college. Is that still no, true? Yes, I did not. You know, I, was, uh, I was just thinking if I can take any summer classes today again, but, uh, you know, when I look into my schedule, you know, that's way tight schedule, you know, like I cannot do that, you know, even if I wanted to, I really love to go back, you know, and uh, be in the school, but like mentally not ready for that. You know, sometimes, trust me, man, like I'm sitting here and mentally I'm not here, you know, because I have to worry about so many things. I can only imagine how difficult that is when you've given so much. And this has personally, we've talked to so many people who've been personally impacted by our withdrawal and by our 20 years of war. But I think that your story might be just the most, it just shows. And there are so many Afghan families who are here, who are supporting people back home, who are very much impacted by the results of what we did leaving Afghanistan in such chaos at HKIA. Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts on what's been unfolding with Pasoon and his family in the aftermath of the withdrawal? Um, frustration and, you know, I think in the United, in the United States armed forces, right. We've, we've fully recognized and come to recognize that service, that the service and sacrifice, uh, in military service is a family endeavor, right? It's not an individual endeavor. It's, uh, children are part of those service and sacrifice. Spouses are part of those service and sacrifice, uh, parents, siblings, all of these things. Everybody makes some type of sacrifice. And, you know, we ensure those individuals are, uh, you know, taken care of, resources are available, et cetera, et cetera. And here we have a case of an individual who, again, I, you know, earlier in the podcast, I, I would argue has done more for American interests 
in his short lifespan, certainly in the, you know, the first 20, 20 plus years of his life than most Americans do in a lifetime. And we have, uh, for lack of a better word, we've abandoned his siblings in Afghanistan. I hope that changes and I'm cautiously optimistic we'll get there. How long? I don't know. Um, and here he is working 16 hour security shifts, followed by Uber shifts on the weekend, followed by, you know, other jobs uh, to feed his family. And had he uh, had fate have him uh, born in another country and uh, he, you know, could lift up his shirt and show you the don't do that, Pasum, but show you the you know, the scars and the scars of service and sacrifice. He would be uh, receiving paychecks every month and uh, have incredible benefits and resources available to him. But sadly, because he was not, uh, he doesn't, though he served the same government uh, and stood alongside uh, Americans for two, you know, that have been there for two decades, like many of his uh, peers in Afghanistan. And we left them behind. And so that's really frustrating to me. Um, I'm a patriot and I love the United States, but I, and I think, you know, it's our role as American citizens when our government fails us, so how do we advocate and, uh, and, and try to right the waters and make sure that, uh, you know, we, we don't stop talking about it and we don't stop trying to uh, keep the commitment we made to those Afghans that uh, served alongside us, whether in uniform or uh, as linguists. So. Very well said. Absolutely. You put it better than I could have ever done. Um, Pastoon, I'd like to give you the final word. How is your family doing now? And you know, what are you all looking forward to or concerned about in the immediate future? Uh, really don't know what to do because, you no, know, like you were kind of sitting in the dark, you know, especially when it comes to the Afghan side. My sisters, they cannot go to school. They graduated the high school, but they will be not able to continue their higher education. Same thing with the brothers. You know, even uh, the one of the things that, they, you know, it's kind of, stupid that they do there. One of my brother, he was going to the Afghan American University. And one day I saw on the TV, I'm pretty sure most of you guys seen it, that whoever went to school with the Afghan American University, they were the spies for the United States. And they should be targeted too. And you're like, really, you know, that you're just going to school there. And I'm mostly concerned about him very much too, that, you know, that, you know, hopefully he never get end up in those kind of situation. But it is a lot of frustration still. Well, we can completely understand that. And, you know, Pasun and Ryan, we are so honored that you joined us today to talk about these important stories. And, you know, your selfless service to those in need is a real credit to our nation. And um, we just can't thank you enough for being here.